Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 51 and 52 this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 through 52. It's important to remember what happens when the Word of God is read. If you are familiar with uh, Exodus chapter 19, you will remember that's when the people of God come to Mount Sinai and they heard the voice of God thunder from heaven. And uh, they then begged Moses that that would never happen again. And so what God did then is He appointed Moses to bring the Word of God to the people. And the people were to receive that word as if God really was thundering from heaven. But God refrains from actually thundering from heaven that you might not die. And as you hear the word of God now, recognize this is what's happening. The word of God is going forth now. The provision that has been made that you might be able to receive it without being terrified. Uh, This is what God has done and this is what now you are giving your attention to. And so brothers and sisters, please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask now for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, how we do pray that you would, uh, that you would, Lord, now bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless it both in the preaching and in the hearing, that you would use it to build up your people in faith and love and comfort, Lord, that we might see the, the glory of Uh, the full counsel of God, how we are thankful that you have not left us in the dark. We can, we we think of um, what the psalmist says in Psalm 147, that uh, you have so blessed Israel because you have taught Israel your statutes. You have taught, you have given to Israel your word. And in those days you had not dealt thus with any other nation. This was the great thing that set Israel apart in its blessedness. And Lord, how thankful we are that you have given us now this day your word. Uh, May it be that you would uh, bless it to our hearts, that we would not just receive it uh, outwardly, that it would go into our ears physically, merely, but that it would penetrate to our hearts, that we might receive it well and give to you glory. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as you think about understanding the Bible and you think about uh, knowing what the Scriptures teach, one of the most important questions to ask is how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament and how, even vice versa, how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament. This is, a, this is a, a quite a big problem and a big question that many people uh, have. There are many who, today, even today, will say that Um, It seems like the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. They'll say, you know, the God of the Old Testament seems to be a God of wrath, whereas the God of the New Testament seems to be a God of grace. And one of the things this leads to is it leads to a very heavy emphasis on the New Testament to the exclusion of the Old Testament. And so this is why you can hear, you know, 
uh, though the, the New Testament is perhaps 25% of the, of the scriptures, that perhaps 75% of sermons will be uh, on the New Testament itself. And it's not to say that we are to reject the New Testament. There is even a priority given to the New Testament. Um, but the reality is, is that there is often an imbalance because of this differing view about this lack of understanding about the way in which the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. Now, all the way back in the ancient church, very, very uh, early, in just the second century, there was a heretic known as Marcion. And he basically made this exact same argument. He said, you know, there is, the, there is different gods in the, Old, in the New Testament. And because of this, uh, the Old Testament is actually not a part of the canonical scriptures. And so he was one of the first to say, I'm going to receive the New Testament to the uh, whole exclusion of the Old Testament. And what he found then was that there was a further problem, which was that Many of the New Testament books seem to be so influenced by the Old Testament, and therefore he ended up chopping up even the New Testament and receiving only a small portion of the New Testament. Uh, this is an example of the kinds of things that can happen if you do not understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And though there are very few Marcionites today, uh, many Christians today can end up being a kind of practical Marcionite without even realizing it where because of lack of understanding about the way in which the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, there can be an exclusion of the Old Testament practically uh, from one's understanding of the Scriptures. You don't go to the Old Testament to find out about God or about the Messiah, about Christ, about how we are to live. You go to the New Testament for that. Um, there is, um, there's also some who think that there is a different method of salvation in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. The Old Testament is about law. The New Testament is about grace. Now, there is some sense in which that is true. Uh, but not in the sense of it being a different method of salvation, as, as we will see. But what this does is it ends up making the Old Testament um, unable to speak to your life today. Uh, you know, if Abraham's faith was not like yours, if Moses' faith was not like yours, if David's faith was not like yours, then what really can they say to you uh, today? It, the whole Old Testament becomes merely a foil for the New Testament. And therefore, again, there is this uh, overwhelming... Um, uh, emphasis on the New Testament uh, merely. And uh, yet, and yet, brothers and sisters, uh, the scriptures teach that the church is to proclaim to the people of God the whole counsel of God. This is what the Apostle Paul sought to do. This is what he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, put before the people of God the full counsel of God. And Marcion had something quite wrong with regard to the, his divisions of the New Testament. The reality is it's not just some books of the New Testament that are built on the Old. It is every single book of the, of the New Testament. Every single book of the New Testament is built upon uh, the Old Testament. And we will know that God is blessing His church, that He is pouring out His Spirit when there is a revival of understanding of the Old Testament. We will know that the church is moving towards a more healthy uh, situation, a more healthy position, when the entire Bible is in fact received, when the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is taught in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is received as such. Because uh, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you will, you will also have a warped view of the New Testament as well. And therefore, this is an, an, an incredibly important thing to, to think about and to receive. Now. Why is it that I'm talking so much about the Old Testament and the New Testament? Uh, why is it significant in light of this particular text that we, that we just read? 
Well, if you remember the context of what's happening, the Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew chapter 13 is concluding the parables of the kingdom that have been given all throughout Matthew chapter 13. So there are a number of things that we've learned about the kingdom of God. Uh, we've learned that it will be variously received. We've learned that it will grow. And yet, even though its growth is assured, there will be always be some who fall away. We have learned that there will be a judgment at the end of time. We have learned that there is going to be great blessing for those who uh, uh, remain in the kingdom of God all the way to the end, those who endure all the way to the end. We've learned all these things, and now the Lord Jesus Christ, in his conclusion, says that one who is truly a scribe in the kingdom of God is able to bring forth from his household both things that are new and old. So the new things are the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has just said. He has just explained to his disciples uh, what the new things that he is revealing about the kingdom of God are. But a true disciple of the kingdom of God is able to bring forth uh, good treasures, not just that are new, but also those that are old. And the reason for this is because what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying about the kingdom of God does really build on what was said in the Old Testament. It goes beyond it in some ways. It's, an, it's new revelation in some ways. And yet it is very much related. And those who understand what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying who are truly scribes in the kingdom, those who really are mature in their understanding, what Christ is saying is you will understand all the things that I am saying and you'll be able to explain them in the context of all the things that have been said before. That's to say that the scriptures are one with regard to its declarations about the kingdom of God. There are new things that Christ is saying and yet it's a, an, an expansion, a building on the foundation of the things that were already laid down in the Old Testament. And this is, brothers and sisters, the message that the church must proclaim. It must proclaim both the new things and the old things of the kingdom of God. And so we'll look at this passage now under two headings. So we consider this a bit further. First, we'll look at uh, the scribes of the kingdom and what they're called to do. Verses 51 and the first part of 52. And then we'll look at what uh, their actions in, the, in this kind of mini parable of bringing out treasures that are new and old. So look at the scribes themselves and, and uh, again, what they're called to do and then, and then the treasures that are new and old, the things that they are actually uh, bringing out. So look at me again then at the beginning of verses 51 and the beginning of 52 as well. So notice that in 51, Christ is understanding, have you understood all these things? He's, he's, quite, he's asking them, have you understood all these things? So again, he's referring to all the parables that have gone before. You, you remember that some of them were given in public, some of them were given in private. Um, Christ would explain the parables to his disciples in private, um, but the, the people in the crowds very often would just get the parable, and they were left in confusion. We've, we've been looking at that for a number of weeks. And they say now that they have, in fact, uh, understood all the things that Christ has said. And then... Christ gives this, again, this mini parable where he describes those who are the scribes who are instructed concerning the kingdom of God. Now, as we think about these scribes, it's important to recognize what a scribe is. What, was, what were scribes in Christ's day? Uh, they were those who were, in fact, teachers. An example of a, of a scribe from the Old Testament would be someone like Ezra. Who is, he is very knowledgeable about the law. He's set apart to teach the people of God the word of God. And so now Christ is saying there are going to be certain people who are going to be scribes in the kingdom of God. And the goal for these scribes will be to be those who are instructed. Remember, the kingdom of God is coming now with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ comes and the kingdom is in fact here. And so it's important for to recognize then, um, as the Christ is, is, is teaching about, about these scribes, you know, what are these scribes supposed to do? What are they, what are they supposed to be like? 
And uh, here, first and foremost, then, as we think about these scribes, Christ is referring to his disciples. They are the ones who have received the parables and the interpretations. Christ is not speaking here to the crowds generally. He is speaking to those who have been set apart in order to teach the truths of the kingdom of God. And the reason this is significant is because uh, we, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, build all of our ministry on the words of these men. We think about what the New Testament is. It is the apostolic teaching. These are the apostles. Christ himself taught the apostles the new things concerning the kingdom of God. The implication of what he's saying is to these disciples is, you are going to be an instructed scribe in this kingdom. You are going to be set apart for the teaching of these words. And therefore, you need to be, as I'm going to describe, one who can bring forth treasures that are in fact new and old. And if, then even further, if if the apostles, the disciples, are going to be set apart as scribes in the kingdom, then it also means that the ministry of the church must also follow the example of the apostles in this regard. This is to say the teaching ministry of the church must correspond to the apostolic ministry of the church as well. So when we think about the application of these words, what, what is, what's the implication of them? The implication of them is first and foremost for the way in which the church teaches the Bible. The church is to teach the Bible in accordance with the apostolic teaching in such a way that it always brings forth treasures that are both new and old. That's, that's the significance. That, that's, that's where to understand uh, the thrust of what the, what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. And so it is in that context then that he speaks about bringing forth things that are new and old. And as I've mentioned, uh, as you can you can. Uh, put together by the introduction, uh, the things that are new are the things predominantly seen in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that are consistent with the idea of the New Testament. And the things that are old, then being everything that comes before, have to then refer to the Old Testament. So what Christ is saying here is that when you think about the teaching ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must be centered on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And even further, if a person is truly going to be a well-instructed scribe in the kingdom of God, this word for instructed is the same word as being discipled. So it's a, a well-learned person who's learned from his master. Someone who is a well-instructed scribe in the kingdom of God is one who will be able to teach both the Old and the New Testaments well, who will be able to put this before the church. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it is a great problem if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ only ever brings forth treasures that are new. It's a great problem. It's a great deficiency. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ expects his words concerning the kingdom, all the great truths that we've been talking about for the last couple months, all these great truths, they are to be placed in the context of the words of the prophets that have come before. They are, they are building on that foundation. Um, in the Old Testament, if a prophet were to be considered a false prophet, the great test, the great test would be, does he speak according to Moses? If, if he can't speak according to Moses, then he's a false prophet. It doesn't matter what else he does. In fact, uh, Moses will even say in, in Deuteronomy 13, even if he does great signs and wonders, if he does great signs and wonders and then says, let's go after other gods, what Moses is saying is, you are to recognize God is tempting you, he's testing you to see, he's testing you to see whether or not you were actually going to be faithful to him. 
Because the idea then is the words of Moses are to be the great foundation for everything. You remember this is even what the, the, what the Pharisees are accusing the Lord Jesus Christ uh, of, of doing. They, they do not think he's speaking according to Moses. This is, was, this is the great challenge that they leveled against him. And Christ never responds by saying, well, you know, Moses was for the Old Testament, but I'm bringing something new that's completely different. That's not what he said. You remember in, in chapter 5, which we looked at a long time ago, um, the, the, the challenge that is given is, you've not spoken according to Moses, but what Christ has said, he says, I do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. Surely I say to you, not one jot or tittle of all the things that Moses has said will pass away until all things have come to pass. All of it will remain. And then, Moses, then, then Christ gives an understanding of various laws that, that were given under Moses. And what he's showing is, is that it's not I who am breaking Moses in this regard. It's actually the Pharisees. That's what he's saying. Unless your righteousness goes past the scribes and the Pharisees, then, uh, then you will not, in fact, enter into the kingdom of God. The point is, brothers and sisters, that as it was true in the Old Testament, you must speak according to Moses, as Isaiah said, to the teaching, to the law, and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It is because they have no hope in this life. The same, brothers and sisters, is true even today. There are some things that have changed with the difference between the Old and the New Testaments, and yet it is still true that what Moses has said is normative for the people of God. And what all the prophets have said is always to be received as the Word of God. And you can see this all throughout the New Testament itself. Everyone, every apostolic writer always labors to show what he is teaching is in fact consistent with the things that were spoken of in the Old Testament. Every writer says that, every single one. Every doctrine can be found in Moses, is expounded by the prophets, and ultimately comes to full fruition in the New Testament with the Gospels and the authoritative interpretation of the events in the apostolic teachings and writings. And the point of this, uh, of going on and emphasizing this so greatly, brothers and sisters, is merely to, just to impress upon you this great fact that if you are to be a mature Christian, you yourself must understand the Old Testament. You cannot simply be a New Testament Christian. You can't be a New Testament Christian. And the church must always labor to teach both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The full counsel of God must always be placed before the people of God. That's what a well-instructed ministry is going to be. A well-instructed scribe in the kingdom of God will be able to do this. Now, those are the scribes. We think about this. This is related to the, the public ministry of the church. Now, then notice, secondly, the things that they are to do, again, bringing out treasures new and old. So let's think a little bit more about what these treasures are. I've noticed very generally that it refers to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, notice that the order is, in fact, significant here. That the Lord Jesus Christ says, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So not old and new, but new and old. And there, I think there is a significance to this. There is some sense in which the New Testament is superior to the old. It's superior to the old insofar as the fulfillment of a promise is going to be better than the promise itself. And that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. However, even in declaring it and saying it in this way, immediately shows us the significance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks about the same things as the New Testament. It must, because the Old Testament is the promise of the things which are fulfilled in the New Testament. So there is something of a superiority to the New Testament, and yet, 
Uh, and yet, there is a relationship between the two. Now, what I want to do here is to give several ways in which the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, have um, the same message. So again, I mentioned one of the reasons why the Old Testament is neglected is because there's a lack of understanding about the level of continuity between the Old and New Testament. So, for instance, if the Old Testament God is the God of wrath and the New Testament God is the God of grace, then there's no way to redeem the Old Testament. There's no way it will ever be helpful to you. So, the, 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 the great thing that you need to understand in order to see the importance of the Old Testament practically is to understand the lines of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If the message is the same, then obviously the Old Testament is going to be useful and good. And what I'm arguing is that that's, the, that's what Christ is presupposing. The reason why you have to be able to bring forth treasures new and old is because there is a, a natural agreement between the new and the old. So wherein does that agreement consist? There are obviously some things that are different. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't have the food laws that divide us from other peoples. We, we, we don't keep the Passover. There's a, a bunch of things that we don't do. There is some level of discontinuity. And yet, there is fundamentally continuity between the Old and New Testaments. And so, several things that show the, the continuity between the Old and New Testaments. First, the Old and the New Testaments declare that the people of God only have hope in the same Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament writers consciously wrote of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the message that they put before the people was always... You, you believe in the promise of this coming Messiah and you will be saved. That's always ever the, the position of Moses and all the prophets. In fact, uh, the Jews even recognized this. Uh, even hundreds of years after the New Testament, so that, where there would be a, a great reason for the Jews to deny certain passages were Messianic, because the Christians were using all these passages saying, look, Old Testament, this teaches about Christ, this teaches about Christ. At some point, the Jews said, well, none of these passages teach about the Messiah. But as late as centuries after, uh, after the, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews still recognize in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, there's a passage where they say, all of the prophets, so these, are, these are people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, their view of the Old Testament, all of the prophets prophesied only concerning the days of the Messiah. The understanding of the Jews, even as they rejected Christ, was the only thing of significance that the prophets ever speak about is the Messiah. They're always only speaking about the days of the Messiah. And we've seen this even in the book of Matthew. Matthew has labored to show this point. The first four chapters of the book of Matthew are all about how Christ has fulfilled what the prophets said would happen when the Messiah comes. He's, he, he did this uh, with quoting text after text. If you, if you remember, we looked at this probably a few years ago. Uh, but the point was that Matthew was showing that when Christ came, he was fulfilling everything that was spoken of by the prophets because the prophets taught about the same Savior. So there's the exact same Savior, Old Testament and New Testament. There's also the same method of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not the case that the Old Testament is about works and the New Testament is about faith. You think of even the Apostle Paul, you think of the, the main person who talks about um, justification by faith. When, when Paul argues for the doctrine of justification by faith, he gives Abraham as an example. He, he grounds the doctrine in the Old Testament, not even just the Old Testament generally, saying all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, Moses was already teaching justification by faith. 
That, that's what he's arguing. So Abraham, the prototypical man of faith, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, as it says in Genesis 15, 6. And uh, this, was, this is not isolated to, to Abraham and the covenant made with him. Uh, Moses, who gave the law, usually we think of the law being about works and grace being, being about something different. And yet Moses, who gave the law itself and commanded obedience to the law, yet he himself instituted uh, at the direction of God all of the sacrificial, the whole sacrificial system which pointed forward to the redemption that was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you were to ask then, did an Israelite need to obey the law perfectly for eternal life? Did an Israelite need to obey the law perfectly for eternal life? The answer was clearly no. That's the reason for the sacrifices. The Old Testament always declares that no one's without sin. Solomon says that in 1 Kings 8, there's, there's uh, no man who does not sin. You think of the psalmist in Psalm 143, do not enter into, into judgment with your servant, for all people sin. That's, that's the point. So all people have sinned, and yet Moses says there's a system of sacrifices. If, if, you, if you sacrifice these animals in faith, in what they stand for, you will be saved. You will have the application of what they stand for applied now to you, and you, you will be saved from your sins. So an Israelite, though commanded obedience, still, uh, still did not have to obey perfectly for eternal life. That was the point of the, the, of, uh, the, of the sacrifices themselves. The sacrifices were meant to look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the point is that there will be no salvation, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. That's the message of the Old Testament, and it's the message of, to, of the author to the Hebrews uh, as well. And uh, not only this, but if you think further, is obedience required in the New Testament? The answer is clearly yes. There's no, there's no difference in this regard. And even the kind of obedience in the Old Testament and New Testament is the same. It's an obedience that comes from a heart that truly has received the grace of God. Obedience is necessary in both the Old and the New Testaments, and yet in exactly the same way. You think of even questions about the sovereignty of God's grace. That uh, you think of, of um, very often we think of you know, the, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 1. But brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God's grace did not begin with the Apostle Paul, it began with Moses. Moses was the one who clearly taught this doctrine. You think of, uh, you, uh, you think of the way even Paul in, in Romans chapter 9, when he is speaking about God hardening whom he wills and having mercy on whom he wills, he quotes from Exodus and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, where God declared that he, would, he was hardening Pharaoh's heart for this very purpose, for his own ends. You think of even further uh, the way in which uh, Moses is uh, giving the narrative of the birth of Jacob and Esau. Rebekah is told before either one of them is born, which one will receive the blessing? Clearly showing it's not going to be anything related to what they're doing. And even all throughout the narrative, you think, why is it that Jacob is blessed rather than Esau? It's a very strange thing to think about. The reason it's so strange to think about is because it does not appear that Jacob is worthy of any of the blessings. He's done no works that would make him worthy of these things. He's just as bad or worse than Esau. But, but what's the significance then of Jacob receiving the blessing? It is the fulfillment of what God had proclaimed to Rebekah before they were born, before they were born. The point is that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. This is seen, seen even, even more clearly, uh, very explicitly in, in Deuteronomy 30. You'll go into exile and then God himself will circumcise your hearts. 
You're going to go into exile because God has not yet given you the heart to obey, says Moses. And when you're in exile, then God will give you the heart to obey, and it's in that very day that you will, in fact, turn to the Lord. The sovereignty of God's grace as a method of salvation, part of the, the doctrine of salvation, is taught in exactly the same way in the Old and the New Testaments. The, uh, the third thing, so we have the same Savior, the same method of salvation. We have the same promise of eternal life. You know, many people think, they look at the Old Testament, they say, you know, the Old Testament, all these, all these people, they were believing in God, but they only cared about the land. They only cared about earthly blessings. Uh, they weren't thinking about eternal life. But brothers and sisters, this is not the case at all. God, in the Old Testament, held forth the offer of eternal life using the physical blessings that he was giving to them. And this was very clearly understood by all the faithful in the Old Testament. It was very clearly understood. If you think about what was the benefit of having the land of Canaan, what was the benefit of having this promised land? Uh, you know, it's going to be a great land. There's going to be, it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, we're told. And uh, yet... After the golden calf incident, God says, I will go and I will bring you into this land. I will drive out all these nations for you. You can dwell in this land, but I'm not going to go with you. So you can have all these physical blessings, but the one thing you're going to lack is the real spiritual blessing, which is related to it. And Moses says, Lord, if you don't go with us, don't send us up. If, if, if we had the blessings of the Garden of Eden but did not have God dwelling in our midst, then we don't want those blessings. It's better for us to remain in exile and be with you than it is to go up and receive all the physical blessings and, in fact, uh, not uh, have this one great blessing. Even, even further, brothers and sisters, you think of uh, what we are to learn about the very first gospel promise. W what are we to learn from the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent? Would it be a real victory if this seed comes and defeats the devil, the devil who brings in death itself, and yet the defeat of the devil did not come with a reversal of this death that he brought in? Or what are we to learn about Adam receiving this curse where he is told he is going to die and then immediately names his wife the mother of all the living? Is it not that he has understood that though he die, yet he will live because of this promise that was given to his wife, that from his, from his wife will come a seed who will crush the head of the serpent, who will bring in this life even in the midst of great death. What are we to learn from Enoch when uh, he walks with God and then is translated so as never to see death? Are we not to learn that if you walk with God, if you walk with God, you will be saved from death just like Enoch was? What are we to learn from Noah, the one who was saved through the waters of judgment? If the, if the waters of judgment, are they not to be a picture of the final judgment? Are we not to learn that if, if you are upright in your generation as Noah was, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ and following him in obedience and in faith, that you will persevere through the waters of judgment just as Noah did? Or, or is that not what we are to learn about from these things? What, what are we to learn about Abraham in faith bearing his wife? Uh, what are we to learn about Joseph giving instructions concerning his bones? Uh, why, why care about your bones? The reality is, you care because the resurrection of the dead is going to come. And this is even said, even very explicitly. You may think, you know, this is, seems to be kind of implicit things, but um, explicitly in Isaiah 25 and 26, God speaks about swallowing up death forever and raising the dead. Psalm 73 speaks of us, uh, uh, God leading us through this life and then receiving us to glory. The psalm that we've been singing uh, this month, Psalm 17, uh, Lord, deliver me from those whose only portion is in this life. 
Then he speaks about all the great blessings, the maximum earthly blessings you can have. They are filled with good things all the way to their death. Then they, then they give their good things even to their children. There's nothing more you could ask for in terms of physical blessings. But what does the psalmist say? I will be content, not with those things, but with waking and seeing your likeness. What's the psalmist's hope? It's eternal life. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament and the New, and the New Testament, there is the same Savior, the same method of salvation, the same promise of eternal, uh, eternal life, the same requirements for godly living, obedience required in exactly the same way, the same warning of judgment. Many people think that the Old Testament is a, is a, is a book of wrath and the, the, the New Testament is a book uh, of, 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 of grace. And we see many uh, great examples of God's judgment. We think of the flood in the days of Noah in the Old Testament, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the Canaanites, the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian deportation. But brothers and sisters, these things are not something contrary to the nature of God that we are to be ashamed of, as if they are things only spoken of in the Old Testament that we need to hide. The reality is all of these things are significant because they find their ultimate fruition in the final judgment for which we have the clearest explanation from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You'll remember that if you've been with us for the last few months, so we've been looking at Matthew chapters 11, 12, and then various parts of 13, that there's been quite a number of sermons about the judgment. And the reason is because simply that's what the text is saying. Christ, we understand most about the doctrine of judgment and sin and wrath from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who's making these connections between what he is saying is going to come, and these other things in the Old Testament. That's how we are to understand the destruction of the Canaanites, for instance. Uh, it is a warning of what will happen to people who turn away from God. And that warning remains into today as well. And so we, if we just think about then this, just a summary. Same Savior, same method of salvation, same promise of eternal life, same requirements for godly living, same warning of judgment. And the point is then to say the Old Testament and the New Testament are fundamentally one. To give even a, a last and, and, and greater example of this continuity, particularly with regard to what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here, there will be treasures brought forth new and old, particularly as it relates to the kingdom of God. So what the Lord Jesus Christ has just been speaking about, all these parables, these, these were first spoken of by Moses with regard to the kingdom of God. The first, the first person who was given, uh, who was given a, a kingship was Adam. Adam, all things were committed to him in, in rule. And then there was this seed of Adam who would, have, uh, who would win a decisive victory over an enemy. We already have kingship language. Genesis 22, 17, where we learn that the son of Abraham will be a king. In Genesis 49, 10, we learn that this one will be from the tribe of Judah. He'll have the obedience of the nations. In Numbers 24, we learn that this king will, uh, will be over all the earth and that he will be a king at the end of the days. In, 20, in Genesis 22, even further, we learn that this king will be the one through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. In the Davidic covenant, we learn that this king will be from the, son, the seed of David. He'll have an everlasting kingdom. He'll build the house of God. In Daniel, we see that this kingdom will outlast every other kingdom. It will overcome all the kingdoms of the world. The son of man himself will be the one who's ruling on the throne, the heavenly throne, and the kingdom will be delivered to the saints in the last day. Uh, all these things are things that were already spoken of, and all of them are related to the kingdom of God. There was already a great expectation for the kingdom of God, and this is the message that is always to be proclaimed from the pulpit of the church. 
It's always to be proclaimed in the public ministry of the church, and it's the things that you need to understand. The Old and the New Testaments speak in uh, one great message concerning this kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are to be faithful and godly Christians, if you're to be mature in this world, your, your health as a Christian depends upon your understanding of the full counsel of God. And so I commend you to the Old Testament and to the New, not to, to portion off the scriptures and say things like Leviticus don't matter. The entire scriptures have been given that you might understand the kingdom of God. May it be, brothers and sisters, that you would be granted grace from God to see the unity of the Testaments, that you might be able to appreciate the treasures of both, that you might be able to receive a ministry where the treasures are brought out new and old, and then beholding these treasures, the, old, the treasures of the Old Testament, the treasures of the New Testament, that you would be granted the grace to see the glory of our God and our great Savior and King. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you and praise you for your entire word. Lord, may it be that you would grant us the grace to receive the whole of it, the whole of it, O oh God, with humility, with grace, with love, with meekness, that we would be given ears to hear, hearts to understand. Lord, we even know further that our our warped view of the New Testament comes from our lack of understanding of the Old. Lord, may it be that you would, uh, Lord, that you would in fact help us to see the glory that you have revealed in both Testaments. And Lord, simply to rest on, the, on you and the grace that you have given to us. Father, we know that your word teaches that your word is clear. Your word teaches that it is sufficient. And yet so often we have a problem, O oh Lord. Help us to see that the problem lies with us. Help us to repent when we do not come to your word as we ought, do not receive its message well. And Lord, grant us the grace by your spirit to understand truly and to see your glory. For we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. 
there was a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.